Good morning. I wondered why we had such a large group here today until I walked in and saw the spread of desserts over there. <laughs> the snacks, right, right, not desserts, snacks. Though I never seem to see broccoli over there. It's always sweets. What's funny is, is as I was standing over there, just looking, mind you, <clears throat> I noticed people coming in that we'd never seen before. <laughs> and then they left. <laughs> like, wait a minute. That's not the, why we have snacks. So anyway. Well, I love books. I have a lot of books. If you were to come to my house, you would see two things. Chairs and books. My wife loves chairs and I love books. Sometimes when she tells me she's going to an estate sale, I think, okay, we're going to have some more chairs. <laughs> but uh, I love books. I've got a lot of books, and I've even read some of them. <laughs> Actually, I've, I've, I've read most of them, but not all of them. Why? Well, you probably know why. Whenever marketing does its thing in your life and my life and sort of hype up you know, a book, and you think, man, I've got to get that book. And so you buy it. And then you, you sort of think, well, now I'm done. And I actually brought this book to show you an example. <laughs> I purchased this book with my hard-earned money. And my uh, little bookmark here is on page 37. And it has stayed there for months and months. So I, I sort of fall under this delusion a lot, and it's pretty convicting, especially for a person who loves books. That is, I fall for the delusion that if I buy the book, then I've read the book. All I've got to do is buy it, and somehow it will, it will fit into my head just by buying it. And then what's worse is if you actually read it, then you think, I'm done. It's now part of my life. But it isn't. You could read a book. First of all, you've got to buy the book on eating smarter. And you could read the whole thing and still go to McDonald's every day. Right? It wouldn't make any difference. Buying the book alone is worthless. Reading the book alone is worthless. I haven't gotten that far with this one. But then applying what the book says is actually the real benefit of why you buy a book. But marketing, on the other hand, they don't care about that. Marketing's goal is to get you to buy it. And then they're done. If you can buy the book, they're done. Think about the, not just books, but think about other ways that this works in our life. Think about the exercise equipment that you have in your home that you hang laundry on. <laughs> Think about the local gyms that we drive by every, every uh, January that are glutted with people that are there with their New Year's resolutions and come February 15th, all of a sudden the parking lot is empty. 
they oversell because they are banking on the fact that people aren't going to keep their commitment, that they're going to buy into the idea of being healthy without the application of it. Airlines, they'll do the same thing when they overbook a flight. They'll overbook flights, and then they'll try to pay you to not come. If they actually feel like the flight is going to be too full, they will pay, pay you not to get on because they've overbooked with the usual thought that not everyone shows up. See, the goal of marketing is to get us to buy, not apply. God's goal, on the other hand, is just the opposite, or I should say, takes it to the logical next step. It's not just a matter of buying, but of applying. Jesus told a parable one time about a man that had two sons. Remember the parable? Told the sons to go work in the field. One son says, I'll do it, but didn't do it. The other son said, I'm not going to do it, but then felt bad about it and did it. And Jesus' question is, and here's the million dollar question, which son did the will of his father? Not the one that said, I'll do it, but the one who said, I won't do it, but then ended up doing it. It's application that is God's goal for us. And that's the obvious challenge in our lives as well. So let's look together at the book of James. The Bible, we want to talk about best-selling books. The Bible is the best-selling book of all times. And it is, in a, in a sense, sort of the same marketing ploy. We'll, you can go to a Christian bookstore and fall for the same delusion that if you just buy this Bible or if you just buy you know, this particular study material or go to this conference or hear this Bible teacher, that all you got to do is just pay the money and all of a sudden you're transformed. All you got to do is buy the Bible and all of a sudden you're holy. Or we think that it's going to happen by itself. Um, you know, buying, one of the funnest things for me as a runner is buying new running shoes. You know, you're supposed to do that like every six months because the pad on the bottom wears out. I wonder why my knees were hurting. Went to the doctor and he says, how do you exercise? I said, I run. And he said, well, how long, we talked this and that, and he said, well, how long have you had your running shoes? About three years. <laughs> they still look great. He said, you need to replace those about every, uh, I forget, he said, either so many miles or so many months. So I just do it every six months. But it's fun to get new running shoes. I sort of feel like when I've opened the box and there are running shoes, like, this is going to do it for me. The reality is, no, I've got to put those things on and I've got to get out the door. The Word of God is the same way. You can have a brand new Bible in your lap. You can have a wonderful Swindoll study Bible. It's not going to learn the, it's not going to teach you the Word of God by yourself. You've got to be in it. This is James's whole point. James. Who is James? Well, there's several Jameses in the scriptures. And if you were to look at the very first verse there of James, in fact, the very first word of the book of James is James. And then you look in your margin, and it actually says Jacob. So, is this the book of James, or is this the book of Jacob? Well, James's name, if you look in the original language, all throughout the New Testament in Greek, there is no James, it's all Jacob. We have translated the word Jacob as James. Now, a lot of times we like to uh, fall the blame, to cast the blame here on King James. King James' Bible, after um, uh, 
King James commissioned the Bible to be translated into English, then, you know, James said, I declare that all Jacobs are going to be James. Sort of an urban legend, but it was definitely codified at that moment. It's like the authorized version. You're not going back to Jacob at this point. It's definitely James from here on. But how did it get there to begin with? If you look back in, uh, I think, several centuries prior to King James, when Wycliffe actually did the very first translation of, uh, of into English, he uh, translated Jacob as James. And he used, but then when he translated Jacob like the patriarch, Old Testament, and the New Testament does refer to him, then he translated Jacob. So it wasn't consistent. Why did he do that? Well, some, think about us, for example. Sometimes we uh, will translate, you might say, Robert into what name? Bob, right. Or instead of Richard, we might say, right. And in our family, uh, Caitlin is translated as Kate. And we just know that that's just what we call this person. And so sometimes, uh, like in Wycliffe's day, often Jacobs were James. I don't know why. Sometimes, you know, like I knew a guy whose name was Jacob's son. We called Jake. It's just sort of, that's just sort of what happened. There's something in that century that we can't wrap our minds around. But it was so in the wool that Wycliffe translated Jacob as James, and it stuck ever since then. So all of that is to say we've got the letter of Jacob here, or, but we call him James. And this James was the half-brother of Jesus. There's a couple other James in the New Testament. There's uh, the, James in the big three, you know, Peter, James, and John. The brother of John was James. He was the first one to, uh, to die in the book of Acts, first disciple. The other James was called James, son of Alphaeus, or James the Less. How'd you like that name? James the Less. There were several Waynes in my family, and so at Christmas time, they, they, to keep things straight, my family liked to be bilingual in Spanish, and uh, so they called me Wayne Cito. And in Spanish, Cito means small. Thanks. And then they just shortened it to Cito. I, that was my name. So now, I've shared that with you in confidence. You do not have permission to call me Cito. I actually hate that. I share that with you as an illustration. How'd you like to be James the Less? Anyway, but James the Less, James Cito. And then you've got our James. This James who wrote the book of James is the half-brother of Jesus. He, along with the other half-brothers of Jesus, were not believers. All throughout growing up with Jesus Christ, they didn't believe in Jesus as the Christ, but just as older brother Yeshua. And it wasn't until the resurrection that they came around. In fact, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that uh, Jesus actually appeared to James. To, to his brother James. And boy, what does it take but that, the resurrected Christ. And I love James's humility here in verse 1. He says, James, he doesn't say James, half-brother of Jesus. He says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The humility of, uh, of James is, is, comes out in the very first verse. So all of that to uh, introduce who this is, and this was probably um, the very first book in the New Testament ever written, was the book of James. 
Remember, the church in its infancy was largely Jewish. And so when James here in the first verse says to the 12 tribes scattered among, scattered abroad, greetings, he is ref- he's calling Jews, Jews who are believers, because the early church, that's who were the believers, were Jews. So this isn't written to Jews per se like Judaism, but Christian Jews or early church. It was the first book of the Bible, of the New Testament, I should say. Um, in Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet Beecher Stowe has a character that says this, Don't the Bible say we must love everybody? And then someone says, oh, the Bible, to be sure, it says a great many things, but then no one ever thinks of doing them. (laughs) Here's almost the problem we find in the book of James. It's a challenge of all the books on our nightstands. We've got stacks on our nightstands of books we've never read, and one of those books, James says, shouldn't be the Word of God. James chapter 1, we've read the first verse, but let's scoot down to verse 22. And we're going to focus on the end of chapter 1 and a portion of chapter 2 that I believe is often misunderstood. But we need chapter 1 to give us the context. James 1, 22. James writes, But prove yourselves doers of the word and not just merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Interesting uh, way that's phrased. I think the New International Version say he immediately forgets what he looks like, which is a better sense of the metaphor, but James gets to the heart of what he's trying to teach, that the mirror not only reflects the person, but the heart. And this is what he's trying to get into. The primary goal for the Word of God, James tells us, is life change. The goal of buying the book is not just reading the book. The goal of buying the book is applying the book. It does us no good to buy a bestseller if we don't read it and apply what makes it a bestseller. There are several sad substitutes for uh, application. The first one is understanding. That is, we feel like if we understand it, we're done. No, that, but that's just information, right? We've just read the book. But then there is the next step of actually applying it. The second substitute is rationalization. This is sort of the elbow response. You know, if you're sitting by somebody that really needs to hear this, you know, <laughs> the Holy Spirit convicts you, and that conviction makes your elbow do this. <laughs> you know, you really need to hear this. You know, brother or spouse, usually spouse needs to hear this, brother needs to hear this, boy, my son really needs to hear this. That's, that is a sad substitute for application, uh, is rationalization. And the third one, and this is pretty deceptive, is an emotional experience. That when the Bible is taught in such a way that even the Spirit of God might move you emotionally, and you think, you feel it. And you think you're done at that point, that the goal was to give you an emotional experience. This can be subtle because you feel like, wow, I've really connected with the Lord over the teaching or the reading and your personal reading of, of the word. But then we don't do anything about it. 
James gives us this illustration. It, he says it's not enough to merely hear the word, but to rather to be a doer of the word. And he gives this illustration. And particularly, this isn't in verse two, uh, 23, he says it's like a man who looks at his face. This word for man doesn't mean humanity. It doesn't mean man or woman. It means male. It's specifically talking about a man, a male, looking in a mirror. How do we men look in mirrors? Most of the time, we just kind of walk up, and we're done. I mean, it's fast. We can get done pretty quick. I can start after my wife has started and finish before my wife is done. It just doesn't take long. I'm not saying... You're right. You're right. I'm not saying it takes me shorter time. I'm saying to me, it's not as important, which is obvious, right? And if you look at some single men, it's really obvious. It's like they may not have a mirror in their house. But you wonder, James's whole point is you can't just look at yourself. Men, men, it's like a man who looks at his face and forgets what he looks like. It's like He didn't even look at all. There's no point in looking. But a woman, on the other hand, James doesn't say it, but by saying male, the implication is there, women don't do this. Women, on the other hand, they come to mirrors for business. They come and they use a mirror biblically. A woman uses a mirror biblically. She comes there for change. There's a trap door. It's a trap door right here. I better hang on. But seriously, and it's not true of anyone in this class, but I know of one, I know of one woman, and it's not my wife, one woman at least that definitely needs this mirror. I won't tell you her name, but I'll tell you this. I was, um, a, I, my, my friend's married to her, and so I, I went to their house. I went to their house early one morning to drop some, something off for my friend. And I went and knocked on the door, and the door opens, and this face comes out. And I was physically jarred. Until she said, hi, Wayne. (laughs) Oh, it's you. (laughs) Give this to your husband. Oh, it wasn't quite that bad. I'm just having fun with you. But seriously, a woman takes a mirror a lot more seriously than a man does. In fact, some women even carry little mirrors around with them. If you have a little mirror in your purse, raise your hand. It's called a compact. Can you imagine if men carried a compact? What would we do with it? You know, just kind of... <laughs> now, you can cheat a little bit and use the selfie thing on, on your phone, you know. Just kind of see how you look. But can you imagine forgetting what you look like? It's unthinkable. And this is James's whole point. 
None of us should go to a mirror and do nothing about it. The point, the reason we go to a mirror is for change, to look, to observe, to see what needs to change, and we change it before we walk away. James says that's the Word of God. The Word of God reflects you, which is why he says here in verse 24 at the end that he immediately forgets what kind of person he is. That when we look into the Bible, it reflects what kind of person we are. And the implication here is we should do something about it. In fact, this is his challenge in verse 22. He says, prove yourselves doers of the mirror and not merely observers. Doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. The goal of coming to the scripture is life change. It's not merely uh, observing it and walking away. Uh, verse 25, he goes on and he says the, the goal here of coming to a mirror. He says, but one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. What good is a mirror, James asks, if we don't ask, act on what we see? What good is the Bible if we don't act on what we hear? What good is information without transformation? James tells us at the end of verse 26, at least in this translation, I'm not sure what yours says, but whatever it says that's, that's akin to the word worthless, that is the key word. His religion is worthless. What does he mean by worthless? Well, we'll get into that in chapter 2. But that's the, that's the point. The, the point is, if you look at the Word of God and you do nothing with the Word of God, it is worthless. It's worthless. He says, if you want it to make a difference, here's how it's going to make a difference. He says in verse 27, it's going to affect your tongue. It's going to affect your serving others. It's going to affect, literally, your guarding. The, um, the word here, it says, to keep oneself unstained by the world is literally to guard yourself. The world wants its way into your heart. And pure religion, James says, a true application of Scripture guards yourself from the marketing, the lies of the world that want to wiggle its way in. This is the theme of the whole book of James. And let's trace that theme for just a second. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. James writes, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. See that? Your faith needs to be lived out well. Your faith should not have personal favoritism. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10, James writes, From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. 
Look at chapter 4, verse 17. Chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Look at chapter 5, verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Over and over we see, all throughout this book, this theme, the word of God should be applied. In every chapter of James, and really all throughout James, his goal, through various means, is to show that the word is given, the mirror is there for us to look into and to uh, to make a difference. In fact, the word that he uses here for look into, look back at uh, verse 25 of chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 25, he says, But the one who looks intently, that word for looks intently means to stoop. It means that you're getting in close, that you are looking at the details of the word of God. There is great value if if. You read the Bible like on a Bible reading plan. You know, you read the Bible like throughout a year or something like that. I've done that for uh, many years, and I really enjoy just getting a broad sweep of the whole Bible every year. But there's also one of the things that's helpful is to say, okay, after I've done that reading, say, what did I enjoy or what really impacted me? What might deserve a closer look in what I've read? Then you look intently. And you spend, you know, an extra 10 or 15 minutes or whatever on that particular portion of Scripture that the Lord impressed upon you. So there's value in, uh, you might say there's value in water skiing. You're going over it fast. But there's also value in scuba diving and going deep, going slow, and looking at the details. James says, look intently. Don't just go to a mirror and give it a quick glance and leave, but look intently and let there be change. Now, chapter 2, verse 14, we get into the practical outworking of James's theme in a context that I think is often misunderstood. Look at chapter 2, starting in verse 14. James asks a question. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? What use is it, is the question. Can that faith save him, is the next question. James's question is, what use is it? Or the New International Version says, what good is it? And when he asks the question, can that faith save him, we have to remember the first question. The first question was a question of use or good. What good is it? What, what good does it do? And then he asks the question, can that faith save him? So those questions are connected. They're not two different, two different contexts. It's one context. What is, what's the point? What's he saying? Now, often, we're ta- we are taught that this chapter or this particular section is saying, particularly when it gets down here, it says, uh, faith without works is dead, verse 17, that if you claim to have faith, but you don't have deeds, then you don't have faith. You're not saved. And then there in verse 14, what use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but has no deeds, can that faith save him? I mean, it's right there in the text, right? 
And the, the thought there is, well, you know, if, if you don't have fruit in your life as a Christian, then, my friend, you're not a Christian. Where in the context of James's theme can we justify that? I'm thinking that it is actually a different meaning. So hang with me and uh, see if the context doesn't bear it out true. Let's look at it closely. I think James is talking here not about the genuineness of faith, but, to use his own words in verse 14, the usefulness of faith. What use is it? In fact, remember when we looked at chapter 1, verse 26, I asked you to underline the word worthless. If a man thinks himself to be religious, in other words, he claims to have faith and yet does not apply it, bridle his tongue, deceives his own heart, the man's religion is worthless. It doesn't mean that the man has no religion or the man has no faith. It means what good is it? This is his question. What use is it? What use is it? So the, the question then is, what does he mean? Can that faith save him? Save him from what? Um, let's look at this. Save him from what? Is it from hell? Is it from death? Is it from a bad reputation? The word could mean any of those things. The context has to tell us what it means. We can't just come to it and assume that save means altar call. Is that what it means? Well, how does James use that word? James uses the word save five times in the book. The first time is in chapter 1. Look back at chapter 1, if you would. Chapter 1, verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, who is James talking to? James is talking to Christians. So why is he talking to Christians about the word that is able to save their souls when their souls are, are already saved? And he challenges them to put aside all filthiness. In other words, apply the word that is implanted in you, which is able to save your soul. What does he mean by save your soul? Well, he uses that phrase again in the very last verse of the whole book. Look at James 5, verse 20. 5, verse 20 says, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. The word save can mean salvation, altar call, heaven and hell, you know, that. But it can also mean, you know, that your life is saved. It can also simply refer to a physical salvation from death. That is that obeying the word of God keeps you alive. Otherwise, there may be discipline and God takes your life. And I think that's exactly what James is teaching. It definitely bears under the context He's talking about a Christian who has strayed from the truth, but having been prayed for and confessed his sins, he is spared from physical judgment. In fact, if you look, if you're, I don't know if you're still in chapter 5, but the context there is um, 
Verse 19, he says, if anyone among you, so we're talking to Christians, strays from the truth, and one turns him back, then verse 20 talks about what we just read. And then he talks about the, um, the elders coming and praying. Yeah, verse 14, is anyone among you sick? He must call for the elders of the church, and they will pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. So there is the implication of a sickness that, that was caused because of sin. So, the overarching theme of James is not that faith without works is non-existent, but rather faith without works is worthless, that it has no point. What's the point of having faith if you don't live it out? Be a doer of the word, not just a hearer of the word. And don't be tripped up by the word soul as well. Save the soul. Remember, James is writing to Christians, and here is something, unfortunately, that translations don't do us a favor. Um, The word soul to a Jewish ear would not just be the immaterial part of us, our spirit, which is what we usually think of. We think of saving a soul or saving our soul. We think of that immaterial part of us that goes to glory when we die. But to a Jewish mindset, the soul of the person represented his whole person, including physical life. So when James says to save your soul, it means to save your life from death. And this, is, this uh, bears out in the rest of the New Testament as it would be written as well. When Paul wrote to the Romans, if you were to read Romans chapter 6, Paul asked the question, shall we continue in sin because we're you know, under grace? In other words, shall we sin because we can get away with it? Paul says, no, it'll kill you. This is his point in chapter 6, verse 15 and following. Shall we sin because we can get away with it? Paul says, no, it'll kill you. And he's talking to Christians. It's the same idea here in James. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said that some of them were taking the Lord's Supper in an irreverent way, and as a result, they were experiencing premature death. It's the same idea. It's the same idea. So James is going to go on and give us the answer to his question, what use is it? Look at verse 15, chapter 2, verse 15. He gives an example. He says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? There's the question again. Exact same question as as verse 14 began. What use is it, my brothers? End of verse 16. What use is that? And then he says, verse 17, even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. It is dead, meaning it is non-existent. Um, it, is, uh, it is practically, um, it is worthless, not, not non-existent. It is, it, is, um, it is worthless. It has no practical application in our lives. And then James anticipates an objection, which is helpful. Look at verse 18. He says, But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Different translations 
cover this different ways. Notice in verse 18, uh, if you've got the New American Standard, that is all one quote. You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. That's one person saying that. You may have a translation that makes that uh, two people. One says this and one responds a different way. I think the New American Standard does it well here because basically the objector seems to be saying, hey James, faith will always evidence itself in works, which is the way that a lot of people think today. That if you don't have fruit that I determine is fruit, then you're not saved, as if God's called us to be fruit inspectors. James says, no, it is possible to totally accept the truth but not live it. And he gives an example. The demons believe in God. They ain't living it. They ain't living it at all. It is possible to have a firm belief in the truth, but to not have any application. Just look at the demons. And he says, just like you, they believe the true doctrine, but they don't live it out. Just because you believe the truth doesn't mean you're going to live it out. And this is James's theme. Be a doer, not just a hearer of the word. If you tell me that a saving faith has to have works, then the question becomes, okay, how much good works show a true faith? Who gets to be the standard of that? Me? Am I the standard? Usually when we're saying that, we, we hold ourselves as the standard. You know, you got to have at least as much good works as I do in my life for me to believe that you're a Christian. Well, think about where you were when you first came to Christ. How many good works did you have at that point? Probably not a lot. Even when, if you came to Christ as a child. When we came to Christ as children, we were the most selfish individuals on the planet. Talk about saved by grace. And as we grow up, it gets a little better, right? But we know in our heart of hearts those deep, dark secrets and sins that we nurse when no one but God is listening. And when we don't even care that God is listening. We'll think horrible thoughts about other people. We'll have lustful thoughts about other people. We'll have covetous thoughts of uh, how our life ought to be a different way than it is. And yet we've got the gall to say we've got salvation fruit in our lives. If I was to judge my salvation by the fruit in my life, I would doubt my salvation. Because there's always enough evil in my heart that I'm aware of to cast doubt on the fact if I've even been saved at all. I like, um, I think it was John MacArthur who said, if I could lose my salvation, I would. What a great quote. So true. Thank God that we can't lose it. We can't lose by our works what we, what we gained by God's grace. James even sort of anticipates this. We won't look at it, but back in chapter 1, he says, look, you either keep the whole law or you keep none of it. This halfway doing the law doesn't count with God. You are either perfect or you need to be saved. So how much fruit justifies that I'm saved? You see, that's not James's point. He's not saying, I've got to see fruit in your life or you're not saved. He's saying, there be, better be fruit in your life or your, your faith, it's, it's pointless. There's no practical living it out. There's no practical living it out. The fact that we have commands at all in the New Testament supports that we need them. Think about it. If a Christian is just naturally going to you know, have deeds of good deeds, 
and it's just naturally going to be that way, then why are we ever commanded to have good deeds? We, like, like a car that's off kilter, think about your car. When you're driving your car down the road, maybe you just got it aligned, and you could take your hand off the wheel, and boy, that thing just goes straight forever. And then you hit a pothole. And now, all of a sudden, if you take your hand off that wheel, you're going to be in the ditch. We live with potholes, spiritually. We, we are, we are uh, fixed, or at least our heart is fixed, perpetual potholes. And where our alignment is off, if we don't keep our hand on the wheel and uh, guiding, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, we'll be in the ditch. We have to be told to be obedient. Then he gives us another example. Verse 21, example of Abraham, actually several here. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that his faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, meaning matured. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see, a man is justified by works and not by faith, alone. Ooh, look at verse 24 again, and think with uh, the Apostle Paul's hat on. A man is justified by works and not by faith alone? Hello. Hasn't James read Romans? Answer, no, there was no Romans when James wrote this. But plus, we're talking about two different things. James, in this context, is not talking about being justified in the sight of God, but rather the word here for justified basically is the idea that, that it, it, it's vindicated, that a faith is proven to be faith, not that, it's, uh, not that it's a true faith versus a false faith, but the faith is lived out. He says his faith was, and I love the way he phrases it here, perfected. You may have in the margin here, uh, it says, mine says, by the deeds completed, or verse 2, it was completed, that his faith was perfected, the idea that it was matured, that it grew and it expressed itself in a mature way. And again, this falls right in line with the theme. It means vindication. Jesus used that word uh, many times, and even Paul in the book of Romans used that way to refer to it as our salvation. But Abraham's faith was vindicated, or it was shown to be so, by his works, or to say it simply, it was shown to be useful. Abraham's faith worked, and he lived it out. He gives another example, 25, in verse 25, of Rahab. We go from big, righteous Abraham now to a harlot. Verse 25, in the same way, wow, in the same way as Abraham, was not Rahab the harlot, also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Notice verse 26 begins with the word for. That means I am explaining what I just said about Abraham and Rahab. As the body without the spirit is dead. Now think about that image We've all seen loved ones, friends in a casket, and there's no mistaking. I mean, when you see a person who's dead, they, they're dead. I mean, there's no 
hint of life. When we'll say, oh, you know, looks, she looks alive, or he, he, he looks alive, he looks so natural. No, they look dead. It's clear they're not there, that it's just the shell. I remember the first time I saw my mother dead. It was, uh, well, if you've ever seen a parent dead, you just realize um, that's dead. There is no life there. James is saying, as the body without the spirit is dead, there is a separation from what ought to be. That body was designed to have a spirit in it to give it life. And James is using this as an illustration of his point. Notice he says, as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now, is he saying there's no faith? No. There is a body. It's there. It just ain't moving. It can't move without the spirit. James's point is, you may have a true faith, but if you aren't living that faith out, what good is it? It's like a body without the spirit. It's pointless. It's just going to lay there. Our faith is not meant to lay there. We are meant to be doers of the word, not merely hearers of the word. You see how that fits with the whole theme of James's book? And if you read the rest of James's book, his emphasis is the same thing. Be a doer of the word. And then chapter 3 begins with this terrible verse 1. I hate this verse. It says, Let not many of you become teachers, because knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. That's a hard verse when you're following the call of God. God's called you to be a teacher, and yet, by the way, um, you're also the biggest hypocrite in the room because you cannot dispense all this truth and live it at the same time. Better just to sit there with your mouth shut and giggle. That's what I prefer to do. No, it's a challenge. But the, the point is we've got to live our faith. We've got to live our faith out. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, I am often, I believe, praying for others when I should be doing things for them. It's so much more easier to pray for a boring person than to go and see him. <laughs> than to go and see him. Just pray for him. Don't go see him. Well, here's a principle. It's all sort of boiled down to this, and I love it that Jonathan Murphy said this in, a, in the first uh, big church, as we call it, because as he was going along there, I thought, boy, this plays right into what we're talking about in our class. And here's the principle. Never close your Bible without something to apply. Never close your Bible without something to apply. Our goal, your goal, my goal, each day as we come to this feast of spiritual truth in this book that we can read in our language, whatever translation we want, whatever study Bible we, we want, its goal is to give us information that we can apply. Its goal is to reflect who we are as we look into the mirror and then to, for us to go, wow, I got pepper on my teeth, and to do something about it. Do not walk away with pepper in your teeth. Pepper in your spiritual life is not God's goal. The goal is to see it, close your Bible with something to apply. Wow, today, Lord, I am going to focus on not coveting. 
Today, Lord, I am going to focus on on watching my words. Today, Lord, I'm going to be an encourager. I'm going to keep that in my mind all day long to make sure that I am encouraging every single person I come in contact with. Whatever it is, however God impresses upon you, never close your Bible without something to apply. Haddon Robinson said that when he was a kid, they were coming home from church one day, and uh, uh, this, uh, this boy came up to him and asked him what he had, what he had learned. And uh, the kid said that he, they'd heard the same story about the Good Samaritan, and when it was all through, Haddon said, well, you know, what, what was the spiritual lesson of the story? And this boy said, uh, well, the spiritual lesson of that story of the Good Samaritan is uh, whenever I'm in trouble, you've got to help me. <laughs> that was his application from the Good Samaritan. He saw himself as the, the person who was on the road who everyone needs to help. That was the application. Your, your job's to help me. And Haddon, Haddon took that and said, boy, he's, of course, Haddon was like the prince of teaching people to preach. And he, he said, you know, we always need to make sure that we apply a passage correctly. And we come to it when we read the word of God, we're looking at it, what it can do for me, meaning how I can change. Not necessarily how can I look at this to see what others' obligations are in my life. The benefits of Bible reading aren't immediate. So when I give you that challenge, never close your Bible without something to apply, I mean, that assumes that you're going to be in it. Again, like, like Jonathan Murphy said, you're not going to come to the Word of God like we do. We've got to come to the Word of God like we do with anything else that we eat. When we eat a meal, we don't think twice about it. It's great. Three times a day, we'll sometimes more, sometimes three and a half times a day. We will eat. We will put things in. We will enjoy the taste. We'll swallow. We'll enjoy the feeling of being full. And uh, there's great contentment there. And God designed our bodies to, to do that. I designed our bodies to eat smarter, even though I'm not going to read about it. <laughs> but imagine if we didn't do that with the Word of God. Moses said regarding the Scripture, It is not an idle word for you. It is your life. It is not an idle word for you. It is your life. When Jesus was tempted, and boy, this is one of the most convicting and yet in the same times encouraging examples. Jesus had fasted 40 days. 40 days, no food. And it says he was hungry. You think? He was starving. And it was at that moment Satan comes to him and says, you got the power, take these stones, turn them into bread, meet that need. And Jesus knew that meeting a legitimate need in an illegitimate way was outside of the word of God. And Christ said, man does not live by bread alone. I am not just a physical person. I'm a spiritual person. Jesus says, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. This is what Moses meant when he said, it is not an idle word. So, every day when you eat your Fruit Loops, or your donuts, or your broccoli, or whatever it is that you're eating, let that also be a great reminder that the word of God is our spiritual nourishment. 
And like babes longing for this pure spiritual milk of the word, we take it in and we don't close it without something to apply. Let's pray. Our Father, Moses' words are encouraging to us and yet also convicting. It is not an idle word. This is not just a book among other books on our bookshelf that we bought and don't read. It's not just another book that we read and don't apply. It is not an idle word for us. It is our life. We are more than merely physical beings. We're spiritual beings, and the quality of our spiritual life flows over, spills over into the quality of our whole life. We desperately need to be whole, to have a life that is both spiritually and physically healthy, and if we can't have the physically healthy, we at least can have the physically, the spiritually healthy. Father, thank you that you've given us this book that we can open, that we can read, and while every single word may not make sense to us because we're limited, and indeed, how can an infinite word always make sense to those of us who are finite? But you can give us something. We can ask us, we can ask you to open our eyes that we see wonderful things in your law every single time we open it, that we would not walk away without something to apply. Father, help us to make this a priority. Help us to make it part of our day like brushing our teeth, like eating our meals. It is so routine to the health of our, of our spiritual lives. Pray for each of us that you'd give us wisdom to see past the, the, the distractions that want to take us away from the word and help us make it a priority. Open our eyes as we look into your word that you would give us something to apply. And then would you bless, bless our lives as we apply your word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.